You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. Join us now for Bishop Sheen Presents, hosted by Al Smith. Hello, my dear friends, and welcome to another edition of Bishop Sheen Presents here on Radio Maria Canada, a Catholic voice wherever you are. When I think of great voices, I think of Bishop Sheen. And it was his voice that touched the hearts of millions of souls through his radio addresses and his television programs. And we'd like to share a few of those reflections with you today. So I would invite you to sit back and relax and enjoy the wit and the wisdom of the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Hello, Radio Maria family, and welcome to this week's edition of Bishop Sheen Presents. And uh, today, our good bishop will be preaching about counseling and preaching the gospel. And he'll also be talking about loving our mother, the church. So I invite you to sit back and relax and enjoy this presentation that he gave to priests on a retreat a number of years ago. Please enjoy. This conference will be dedicated to counseling and to preaching. First of all, the counseling. There is considerable counseling needed not only in the parlor, but also in dealing with youth in schools. It is well to remember that counsel is one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. A few years ago, I went through about 20 books on counseling. Perhaps seven of them were written by Catholics, and in not one did I find any reference to the Holy Spirit and the gift of counsel. So one wonders what kind of Christian counseling is given. We send priests away to study counseling. They turn out to be psychologists, all of which, of course, is good in as much as they become skilled in methods, but it is well to remember that it is first and foremost a gift. Now, a few suggestions about counseling. It is generally true that young priests particularly talk too much in counseling. Older priests are not apt to talk because they don't want to bother with it. It's no virtue. We just simply want to dismiss those who come with a problem, which is perhaps much more serious than what the young call rapping. Long talking never does any good. The purpose of counseling is not discussion. It is decision. 
Discussion is often an escape from decision. That is why the woman at the well, for example, when our blessed Lord reminded her that she had five husbands and was not living, and was living with a man who was not her husband, she immediately entered a theological discussion about where should we worship. We think that we're doing something because we talk about it. One of the reasons that Carl Jung, the psychiatrist, broke with Sigmund Freud was because Sigmund Freud had no terminal point in his psychoanalysis. Jung said there must be a terminal point in therapy. Otherwise, we're going to have patients coming to us continually and they will never be better. Furthermore, any counsel, form of counseling, is imperfect if Christ and this gospel are not mentioned. It's not the counsel of a priest. We must not, however, discount because the young talk too much in counseling, we must not discount them. Remember the scene of Nicodemus and our blessed Lord. I'm sure our blessed Lord was far less than half the age of Nicodemus. And yet the young man was right. And Nicodemus did not understand even such a thing as spiritual birth. It is not because youth, however, is of the same age that they can counsel better. That has nothing to do with it. This is a great mistake to think that we always have to have the young to counsel the young. What we have to have are real Christians counseling the young, whether they're young or whether they're old. If you ever want counsel, and we all want it every now and then, there are only two classes to whom we should go. Those who have suffered and those who are holy. Those who have suffered know how to give good direction. So do the holy. And every counselor should pray with the one who was counseled. After the problem is presented, no more going over it, listen to it patiently, then say, now let's kneel down and pray to God for light. I was talking in a Protestant church and a girl came to me and told me that she was a Catholic, but she gave it up, and she said, I would like to see you, but on one condition, that you never say anything about the church or about Christ to me. And so I asked her to come, and the first thing I did was to bring her in the chapel, and I knelt down, and, and uh, I said, Dear Lord, we have a, a young lady here before you, who has asked me not to mention your name.
I do not know why she does not want your name mentioned. Maybe she's had a lover's quarrel. But I'm sure that she loves you. And when I get up, I'm sure she will want to hear your name mentioned. Well, confession followed. The greatest Christian psychiatrist in the world is Dr. Paul Tournier of Switzerland. And if you read through the books of Paul Tournier, you will discover that Dr. Tournier every now and then will write just offhandedly. And I said to my patient, let's kneel down and pray. And never give up hope in the young. Never. Remember that young people are going through a period of insanity, in quotes. Here is a tremendous biological urge that they have never had before, that's surging through their body. They know nothing about it. It's the great creative instinct that God has given them. And it disturbs them. See how a change of life changes a woman later on. Well, they're going through a change of life. And we have to be patient with them during these few years. Sure, their ideas are wild. But by still keeping in contact with them, that time period will pass. Uh, just at the close of the... Uh, I think it was the 19th, maybe the 18th century, there were two altar boys in Italy, Delaginga and Castiglione. And they were carrying for benediction those heavy brass candlesticks that they have in Italy. And Delaginga and Castiglione got into a fight as to who would be on the right. We're all familiar with that kind of quarrel in the sacristy. And one of them cracked the other over the head. And the blood began to spurt out. The people saw it and the people screamed, throw them out. Well, there came Jubilee year. And uh, Delaginga was opening the church door for Jubilee year. Cardinal Delaginga. He was no longer Cardinal Delaginga. He was Leo XII. And he said to Cardinal Castiglione, let me have the hammer. And Castiglione said, remember the day I gave you the crucifix. And he later on became Pius VIII. So there's always hope. One priest told a young boy who came in and was late for Mass, get out of here, and never came back. He never came back. That was Tito. So, counsel, but counsel in Christ. That is what is important. Otherwise, what's the use of being priests? Then as regards preaching. Here, here we are up against a serious difficulty. 
The Vatican Council asked for a homily during Mass. Have you noticed how much catechetical teaching has suffered with the homily? If you look over any magazines that contain sermons, as someone has done in the States, they have found that in a period of seven years, there was never anything said about the commandments, never a word about the sacraments, and not anything about some important articles of the creed. Because they were not in the readings. Our sacramentary in 1965 said there should be an explanation of mystery and something adapted to the needs of the people. The Council of Trent had its catechism. We have no catechism of Vatican II. We're suffering as a result of this homily. We're not just preparing always our homily, but the important thing is basic Christian teaching is missing. That is to say, teaching in an orderly fashion. And the church will have to, in some way, make amends. And it will come, of course. Preaching is presently at a very low ebb. partly because we're undisciplined about preaching. We are talking to disciplined people. Our parishioners will arise at six or seven o'clock in the morning to prepare children to go to school or a father to go to work. They have an ordered life. And their disciplined lives should meet discipline in the pulpit. They need so much preparation for their work. We certainly need it for ours. And the constant theme of our preaching always should be Christ. Because he is with us when we talk about him. When we speak from scripture, he's with us. Remember when St. Paul went to Athens? He was first of all down in the marketplace. And those who heard him likened him to a crow that picked up anything it could find on the pavement. But for some reason or other, because he was curious, in the sense that he had a new doctrine, he was invited to the hill of the Areopagus. So we went to Mars Hill to talk to the senators. We sometimes become awed when invited before a very prominent audience. Well, St. Paul was also awed. And he must have spent a great deal of time preparing this sermon because, one, he used the psychology of the apperceptive mass. He started with something that was common to the preaching and the audience he addressed. He said, I perceive your religious people. I saw a statue to the unknown God. 
And that God whom you know not is the God that I preach to you. From a homiletic point of view, that was perfect. He immediately caught the audience. Then he talked of creation. He talked of providence. Talked of God ruling hearts. He talked of anastasis. He spoke of the resurrection in a vague kind of way, and they thought it was just simply a new figure, a new God. He had only two converts, a woman, Damaris, and the man, Dionysius. His sermon was a total failure. Though homiletically it was perfect. He even went to the trouble of quoting one of his own native poets and one of theirs. But he never mentioned Christ, never mentioned the cross. And they said, all right, we'll hear you another time. He never went back. There's no record of him founding a church in Athens, and he never wrote to the Athenians. But he walked the 40 miles to Corinth immediately afterwards. And he had plenty of time to meditate on why he was a failure. And he wrote it down in the letter to the Corinthians. I am resolved from now on to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. He learned his lesson. A lesson that we have to learn. And now for some practical suggestions about preaching. First of all, we need tools. We need books. I travel between 10 and 15,000 miles a month. In the course of a year, I am in hundreds of rectories. Do you know that I can tell without ever seeing a priest in the house in most instances, the year that he was ordained, <laughs> he hasn't bought a book since. You'd be surprised how many Wapplehursts and Tanquerays I find. <laughs> Younger men will have books on sociology. You can tell the year they were ordained. When you and I go to a lawyer, we want the best lawyer. When we go to a doctor, we want the best doctor. We say to the people, you come to us. We are not keeping up to date, but come to us and learn. It just is not fair. See how important St. Paul regarded his books. 
in one of his letters to the young priest, Timothy. St. Paul says, When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas and the books and above all my notebooks. He needed tools. Notice how many of our Catholic bookstores are closing. We listen to television. We give up reading. We lose even the competency for reading. That is one of the first conditions of learning to preach. Then secondly, prepare all the sermons in the presence of the Blessed Sacrament. Begin with a prayer to the Holy Spirit. Illumine my mind. Tell me what to talk about. Tell me how to do it. We'll have commentaries on the scripture. Always have those with you in making your holy hour. And write notes, your own reflections during the holy hour. It will come in handy later on. And after three or four days of meditating, for example, on the Sunday sermon, then give it to our Lord. Walk up and down the church and preach to it. Ask him if it's good, if he approves it. Then you'll be a hearer yourself. And by doing this, you will learn it from the inside out. I say from the inside out because another rule will be don't read. An old Irish woman heard a bishop reading a speech and she said, Glory be to God, if he can't remember it, how does he expect us to? I know of a Protestant minister who was reading a sermon and he came to the end of his page and Adam said to Eve, and Adam said to Eve, and there must be a leaf missing. If we have to read, it's not part of ourselves. Why should we take a living mind that is in the language of Paul, captive to Christ, and make it captive to paper? Is what we have written so sacrosanct that that which makes us likened to God, our intelligence, has to Make obeisance to it? 
So instead of learning from the outside in, we learn from the inside out. We meditate. We think about what we're going to say. And then it becomes part of us. As the Old Testament prophet said, Shall the woman forget the child of her womb? Yet will I never forget thee. Then another rule is do not imitate Fulton Sheen. Each of us has his own particular nature. If we imitate someone else, we're, we are apt to become insincere, artificial. And the word sincere means without any affectation. When the Romans found a piece of marble that was imperfect, they would fill it up with wax and then round it out. When they found a perfect column that needed no wax, that was sine sera. So we are sine sera, without affectation. And if we are just natural, we will make an appeal. Now, I start it the hard way. It's not easy for everyone to do it. When I first started teaching, I took two resolutions. One, I would never sit. Because you cannot start fires seated. And secondly, I would never read. Unless it would be references. Well, I was a dismal failure at the beginning, but just stuck at it. So you say, well, how can he do it now? Does he memorize? No, I do not have a good memory. But I meditate on these things so often, so long. Well, let it become part of me. And then there must always be and an immediate preparation of a sermon. Give yourselves about ten minutes of pre-homiletic time for immediate psyching to review it in your mind. Maybe referring to note here and there and you will be surprised how many new ideas will be flooding your mind. One of the reasons why it's very difficult to talk at a banquet is because you are talking to a neighbor just one minute before you get up to speak. Notice that in all sports there is a sighting. Boxers, for example football players and the like, runners. Russia makes all of the runners carry an imaginary reel in their heads. And they run off, for example, the mile. It's timing, the speed of each quarter. I would say that this is not the least of the important elements in preaching. The immediate review of what we are going to say.
Well, will we forget? Certainly we will. Sure. I forgot here at your Eucharistic Congress. I was reciting the poem of Joseph Mary Plunkett. Remember, I see his blood upon the rose, in the stars, the glory of his eyes. His body gleams amid eternal snows, and so forth. Well, I know it as well as I know the Hail Mary. But before I said that, I had thrown out the line that Ireland has never recognized any other king but Christ and no other queen but Mary. And I said to myself, oh, this is awful. This is political. And I must never say anything like that. And I spanked myself so hard that when I came to the ninth line of that poem of Joseph Mary Plunkett, I forgot it. And I said to the audience, I've forgotten. Well, Irish jaws dropped in disappointment. And then there came to me a line of Patrick Henry. When you're in difficulty, throw yourself into the middle of a sentence and trust the God Almighty to get you to the other end. So I began. I said, I'm glad I forgot. If I'd ever prayed for anything, I would have prayed to have forgotten these lines. I think there's beautiful symbolism in the forgetfulness. And that symbolism is that standing on the anvil of Ireland's soil, one should be able to hammer and forge out the sparks of his own poetry and not be dependent upon a magnanimous soul like Joseph Mary Plunkett. But the secret of all preaching was the secret of Lacordaire, who used to have a little hole in the wall where he could look at the Blessed Sacrament. You have your hole in the wall where you look at the Blessed Sacrament. The Holy Hour will make you all great creatures pleasing to God. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program. Bishop Sheen presents, hosted by Al Smith. Our meditation during this Holy Mass will be on our Holy Mother, the Church. It would almost seem as if the Church today were the same as the Church in the wilderness. First of all, there is a kind of a de-Eucharistization going on. As in those days when the people said, give us meat, we are tired of this manna. Secondly, rebellion against authority. And Moses complained to God, why must I carry these people like a nurse carries a child in her arms? There was the rebellion of Koran and Ibiran and Dathan, even the sister of Moses in rebellion. And then finally there was no fixed habitation, constant wanderings. They could have covered that journey in three weeks, and it took them forty years. But despite all of this, it is still the church, the Corpus Christi. There are three ways in which the Corpus Christi, or the body of Christ, manifests itself. First of all, in the physical body of Christ, where divinity dwells. 
Secondly, in the physical persons of the church, the assembly, in whom and with whom is the divinity of Christ in his church. And thirdly, the Holy Eucharist, in which God uses not just a single person, single human nature, as he did with our Lord, not just corporate human natures, as he does in the church, but in which he uses creation. So that bread becomes the physical side of the dwelling place, as it were, of his divinity. So the church then is, is the mystery. It's physical, it's spiritual. Visible and invisible. It has scandals. Our Lord said it would always have scandals. Blessed are you who will not be scandalized in me this night. The scandal in those days was the physical body of our Lord's suffering. The scandal today is the ecclesial body of our Lord. Having moral weakness, it seems as if it should always be strong. And yet, not a bone of his body on the cross was broken. Not a bone of his ecclesial body is broken either. It is still holy in its aspirations and in its goal and in the divinity that dwells in it. So we have to look at the church in these days as we look at a hospital. One way would be to say, look at a hospital. Pus, vermin, blood, screams. Look at a hospital. Care, knowledge, science, and love. The church is like Noah's Ark that was full of both clean and unclean animals. It must have had an unholy smell. And yet, it was carrying the eight persons to salvation. The world today is tearing up the photographs of a good society, a good family, a happy individual personal life. But the church is keeping the negatives. And when the moment comes, when the church wants a reprint, we will have them. And the church has its head, its visible head as well as its invisible head. On one occasion, our blessed Lord spoke to his apostles. Now remember, he's talking to the apostles. But then, as we might in a group address only one, so did he. We do not have the full impact of it in our use of you. But when our Lord spoke to them, he said, 
the devil would sift you as wheat. That is all of you. There seems to be an implication that our blessed Lord allows and permits the devil to sift us as wheat. Now to one man. But Peter, I have prayed for thee. For thee. That thy faith fail not. And after thou hast returned subsequent to thy fall, thou shalt confirm thy brethren. How do I, as a bishop, how do you, as priests, how did the apostles share in the prayer of Christ? Notice that Christ, in relationship to the demon, spoke only to Peter. Let us keep that in mind. Only to him. In the conflict with evil, in the conflict with error, we are protected from evil only when we are united with Peter. And the bishops who are not united with him, if there be any, they do not share in the prayer of Christ. Now that's a very serious matter. And we pre-share in the prayer of Christ. Only in as much as we are related to him. And we've been blessed with good pontiffs. The church always gets the pontiff that it deserves. A few hundred years ago we had bad ones. We deserve bad ones. In the lower echelons, we may be not so good. When the church is holy, opposition always comes from without. Like persecution. When the church is unholy, it comes from within. Why do we have such defection of religious and clergy in the roaring sixties. We were not persecuted from without. If we were persecuted from without, we would not have lost them. There are five dioceses behind the Iron Curtain that have not lost a single priest in 20 years. So when we're unholy, that's what happens to us. So a deep and profound love of the Holy Father and everything that he tells us as the head of the church. We need not say, well, there was no infallible declaration before 1870. That has nothing to do with it. The church only defines something when it's attacked. 
infallibility existed long before that. And he is the shepherd. He is to rule the sheep, guide them, feed them. And we go hungry when we depart from him in any way. It has been my happy lot to have known many of them. Pius XI, for example, I go back that far. I remember one audience that I had with him. I was ordained a priest about five years. And I was doing graduate studies at the University of Louvain, and he, remember, was the former librarian of the great library in Milan. And so we talked books, and in the course of the conversation, he said to me, have you ever read Taparelli? I said, no, Your Holiness, I have not. He said, you have never read Taparelli? I dissolved into an emotional crumble. And he said, I want you, as soon as you go out of here, to go to a bookstore and buy Taparelli and read him from beginning to end. I did. Taparelli was a writer on ethics. Big Latin book, not particularly good, I couldn't find. But at any rate, I read Taparelli from beginning to end on ethics. Simply because he asked me to do it. John the 23rd, many audiences. For example, <laughs> showing how human he was. One day he said, Let's have our picture taken together. It will make Spellman jealous. <laughs> How did he know? And he said, from all eternity, God knew that I was going to be Pope. He had 80 years to work on me. Wouldn't you think that during all of that time he would have made me more photogenic than I am at the present time? And then on another occasion, he said, sit down, I want to tell you something. I want to tell you about the last conclave and how I was elected. I want to tell you about the ballots how they changed, who was on the first ballot, who was on the second. And he went on into a description of all of the voting, how it began to narrow, which votes changed and so forth, and how he finally emerged as pontiff. Well, I tell you, that was an absorbing conversation for about 35 minutes or more. And when I finished, he said, now, I impose silence on you for life in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Pius XII, I have seen him break out into an ecstasy. Ecstasy of prayer, just spontaneously. And for three or four minutes he just spoke to God. And he said, you have suffered much. And this was not an infallible decision, but he did add, you are going to have a very high place in heaven. 
and on and on. And Paul VI, many audiences with him. And when I reached the age of 75, a few days ago, no, it was not. It was seven years ago. When I reached the age of 75, I knew that I should offer my resignation. And so I went to the Holy Father, prepared to offer my resignation. And when I went in, I said, Your Holiness, I came to submit my resignation as a bishop at the age of 75. He paid no attention to me. He went on talking about something else. Ten minutes passed. I said, Your Holiness, I came to submit my resignation. Would Your Holiness accept it? He paid no attention. That was twenty minutes gone. I knew the audience would not last for an eternity. And after ten minutes, at the end of thirty, I said, Your Holiness, would you be gracious enough to accept my resignation at the age of 75? He said nothing. So I knew I had only a few minutes more left, and finally, five minutes later, I pressed him and said, Your Holiness, you have not answered my question. Do you wish to accept my resignation at the age of 75? He said, When would you like to resign? I said, On the anniversary of my ordination. And he wrote down the date and then put a question mark after it, after it. I said, why did you put a question mark? Well, he said, it may not be exactly on that date, but it will be around it. And so it was around it. So our pontiffs are, they're the vicars of Christ. Uh, going into an audience once of Pope Pius XII, I was waiting outside, and I was troubled in spirit. I was saying to myself, the good Lord has given me many more opportunities than he's given to other priests, and education and opportunities for apostolate, and how little really I have done with them. And I was disconsolate. And then when I went in and saw His Holiness, Pope Paul XII, I said to him, Your Holiness, I have just discovered how easy judgment is going to be. He said, Tell me, I would like to know. I said, Well, I was just saying to myself how much I failed, how little I have loved the church, really. Then I come in here. And I find the church personalized. You are the church. And I am deeply moved at seeing you and how much I love you. And I said, I think that's just the way it's going to be when we go before the face of the dear Lord. We will be discontent with ourselves, but when we go there, we will be surprised how much we really have loved him. And he said, yes, that's exactly the way it will be. And so on for pontiffs. But in this day when there are, the devil is loose, when there's not just sin but rebellion, 
which is demonic. We have to put a special emphasis upon the church. As T.S. Eliot wrote in one of his poems, he pondered the question, why should we love the church? Is there any special reason for it, particularly in these days? And T.S. Eliot answers it in this way. This I read, obviously. Why should men love the church? Why should they love her laws? She tells them of life and death and of all they should forget. She is tender when they would be hard and hard when they would be soft. She tells them of evil and sin and other unpleasant acts. They constantly try to escape from the darkness outside and within, by dreaming of systems so perfect that no one need to be good. That is the role of the church. It's hard for us to understand the history of the church. We all know it. We've asked ourselves a thousand questions. For example, Why the defeat of a navy, when perhaps the faith of a nation depended on it? Why should the faith in China be snuffed out? Why should we have had in the last 50 years more martyrs than the church had in the first 300? Why was there such a persecution and persecutions in Ireland where there was obedience and loyalty to the Holy See? And contemporary history puzzles us. It puzzled John. But the whole history of the world was summed up in that scroll of which John wrote in the book of Revelations. Who can open that book with the seven seals? We would know the answer to every detail of human history. And John tells his concern about it. And then I saw in the right hand of the one who sat on the throne a scroll with writing inside and out. And it was sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seal? Yes, who can open it? Who can understand history? There was no one in heaven or on earth or 
under the earth, able to open the scroll or to look inside it. I was in tears because no one was found worthy to open the book and look inside. But one of the elders said, Do not weep, for the lion from the tribe of Judah, the Zion of David, has won the right to open the scroll and break its seven seals. Notice here's the Old Testament. The lion of Judah has seven seals. Now we come to the New Testament. And then I saw standing in the very middle of the throne, inside the circle of living creatures and the circle of the elders, a lamb. With the marks of slaughter upon him. And the lamb went and took the scroll from the right hand of the one who sat on the throne and when he took it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. And each of the elders had a harp, and they held the golden bowls of incense and the prayers of God's people, and they were singing a song, Thou art worthy to take the scroll to break the seals, for thou wast slain, and by thy blood thou didst purchase for God men of every tribe, language, and people, and nation. Thou hast made of them a royal house to serve God as priests, and they shall reign upon the earth. It is only the cross, only Christ crucified, only the Lamb with the marks of slaughter upon him was able to open the book. The understanding of human history is at the cross, and that's why we have repeated what the Vatican Council has told us, that the whole spiritual life of the Church is summed up in the Eucharist, in the sacrifice, the sacrament. It's summed up in the Lamb of God. And we will have to wait for the reading of that scroll, but in the meantime, Heaven is responsive to what happens on earth. Heaven is responsive certainly to what is happening to the church in each part of the Western world and all over the world, as a matter of fact. When, for example, St. Paul began to persecute the church of Damascus, as the church in Warsaw might be persecuted today, the heavens were opened. And the Lamb spoke, Why are you persecuting me? Not in the past tense, the present. And it was Christ standing at the right hand of the Father. We say in the Creed, He sits at the right hand of the Father. When the church is persecuted, Christ stands at the right hand of the Father. And for the sake of the church in the eastern part of the world and in Asia, he's standing. See how responsive heaven is 
to what happens to the church. When Stephen was stoned, he too saw the heavens open and repeated the first word from the cross. Stephen saw God standing, Christ standing at the right hand of the Father. We sometimes, who is it that ever started the idea there are two kinds of churches? Well, Tertullian did. He said there are two kinds, the institutional and charismatic. You can't have a body without a soul. You can't have a soul without a body. There's only one church, which is the body of Christ. And as Christ is living in his church, we listen to him. We become attentive to him. We're not rebellious against him. We love him when he speaks through Peter. Chesterton said, I'd rather be, or rather we want a pontiff that is right when the world is wrong. Not so much one that is right when the world is right. When the world is wrong, we have a guide. And what a consolation. Every one of you priests should subscribe to the English edition of the Observatory Romano. There you'll find sound theology, sound doctrine, the teaching of the ecclesial body of Christ. You'll keep up the spirit of Christ. And you'll be able to answer the innovators who in some way are trying to protect a life that is not very spiritual. So love the church. Love it as a mother. Because the Blessed Mother is the symbol of the church. And the love of the two merge into one another. Remember Chesterton described a number of children living on an island in the sea. And he said, one day, and there were reformers came to that island, and they saw great walls built all around that island. And they said to the children, who put up those walls? Tear them down. And they tore them down. No limitations. Freedom. They had to do their own thing. Now, if you go back, you'll find all the children huddled in the center of the island, afraid to play, afraid to sing, afraid to dance, afraid of falling into the sea. You have been listening to Bishop Sheen Presents, hosted by Al Smith, here on Radio Maria Canada.